Good evening, beloved. After Peter, who was the next great sermon preacher recorded in the book of Acts? Uh, that we see him preaching a great sermon uh, with great response. If you said Paul, you're actually closer than you think. Philip might come to mind, but he's a little too late also. But I'll give you a hint. This preacher was also the first martyr of the Christian church. It is a man named Stephen. Uh, last night, uh, I don't know if you follow pop music that much, but I saw where the performer Elton John played his last concert last night. And it got me thinking how Stephen is perhaps what I would call the candle in the wind of New Testament preachers. He only preached one short time uh, that we have recorded. We have this one sermon, uh, but, but boy did he shine brightly and make an impact in that short period of time. An impact that lasted long, long after his physical death. A death that resulted in a resurrection of sorts. And so will you consider this great man with me tonight as we study the resurrected Stephen. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited about the things that we're going to talk about. And I hope in looking at Stephen, at looking at this character, at the man that he was, from maybe a little different perspective, uh, we'll have some very practical things that we should be doing in our lives as we imitate him and as he imitated Christ. Uh, Stephen is introduced to us in Acts chapter 6 as one of the seven men chosen to serve the needy widows in Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6, and we'll spend a little bit of time here in the first half of the lesson looking at Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. These seven men are, in my opinion, deacons, um, although it's not required in the text that that's what they are, but they're chosen to serve these widows who had been neglected in the daily distribution. And these men are uh, said to be full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, full of wisdom. And Stephen himself is described this way in verse 5 of Acts chapter 6. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody wanted to write something on my tombstone, full of faith and the Holy Spirit is a pretty good place to begin. And out of the thousands of Christians, out of the thousands of Christian men who could have been chosen, Stephen was one of these seven. And it's not just that he was one of these seven. He is the first one mentioned, and he's given this longer kind of description of the kind of man that he was. And Luke next describes this man's work, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, and great wonders and signs, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Syrians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Well, it's too often that's the way things go, right? When you can't beat someone's argument, you try and beat up on the person themselves. And so they drum up these charges, and, and we see the hypocrisy in this, that he's spoken blasphemy against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, 
against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, uh, but it seems somewhat miraculous. Uh, you think that would stop them in their tracks a little bit, right? You see this guy's face as an angel, whether that was it was glowing or whatever the case might be. But it doesn't stop them because they do not like what Stephen has to say. So in this, the end of this chapter, we see that Stephen was accused of blasphemy against four different things. He's accused of blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the temple, and blasphemy against the old law. And as trumped-up charges usually do, there's an element to truth in this because Jesus was, in fact, intending to change some of the customs, uh, in fact, change the whole system under which they were worshiping from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. And indeed, Jesus did predict that the temple was going to be destroyed. Now, in his response in chapter 7, Stephen just preaches a fire sermon. I mean, it's the kind of sermon that every preacher wishes he could preach. And what Stephen does is he outlines the history of the Jewish people. And, and this is really smart for a number of reasons, not least of which is the Jews loved sermons like this. I mean, the Old Testament is just full, full of accounts, psalms, sermons where somebody walks through the history of the Jewish people in order to make their point. And so Stephen is preaching the kind of sermon that these Jews absolutely loved. But it's something that we see the, uh, the Old Testament writers did a great deal. And so Stephen is preaching this kind of sermon to show that the leaders of his day were the true blasphemers in these four areas by rejecting Christ. And Stephen's point in this sermon is going to be, if you reject Jesus, then you are blaspheming Moses and God and the temple and the old law. Now, he doesn't start out that way. Um, he's very um, wise as a serpent in the way he goes about this sermon. Stephen lays out how this blasphemous conduct is consistent with the pattern of rejection and misunderstanding that you see throughout Jewish history. In other words, Stephen's point is going to be that they're rejecting Jesus just like they've rejected all the other saviors that God has sent them throughout their history. And he does two things at the very beginning of this sermon that I absolutely love. He, he establishes some credibility and some common ground with these people. And then he begins not by directly addressing the accusations that are made against him, but by laying a groundwork of how he's going to address the accusations with a different but related topic. Now, we don't have the time this evening to read the entire chapter, the whole sermon, but I do want to read just a, a few excerpts from it, and I would, I would encourage you to go back and read the whole thing for yourself. Stephen begins in verses 2 through 8 by emphasizing that he believes the promise given to Abraham and, and sealed by circumcision. So read those verses with me. Beginning, Let's just begin in verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? So the high priest is there. Likely the council was the Sanhedrin court. The same folks that condemned Jesus. And he, Stephen said, Brethren and fathers, listen. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. I mean, you can almost hear these people's heads involuntarily shaking yes to the things Stephen is saying. And what Stephen is establishing here is that, hey, I believe these promises. I believe the promises to Abraham. I believe in this sign of circumcision that was a confirmation of those promises of that covenant. And I think what Stephen is doing in some ways is saying, you know, don't, like, don't act like I'm some kook that doesn't know about Judaism. I grew up in Judaism just like you did. I believe in the promises to Abraham just like you do. I can recite this history as well as you can. And I think there's an application to be made for us. Um, Don't let people get away with this idea of undermining your faith in some sort of condescending way. People are always trying to undermine our basic understanding of the Word of God through condensation. Not not condensation. Oh man, I'm not going to be able to get it now condescension there i got it condescension through condescension i don't even know how that would work with condensation they're trying to obscure things maybe but people can be very condescending toward us right Um, you don't believe in this well you're this you're that and all of these labels they might put upon us we don't have to put up with all that i believe in the god of heaven and earth just like you do i believe in god's power to do whatever he chooses just like you do I believe that we can only be saved by God's grace. So don't accuse me of things that aren't true. And I think maybe we need to be a little bit more aggressive in that regard when people make those kind of accusations against us, even others who believe in Christ. We don't have to put up with this sort of condescension toward us um, and about what we believe. And we see that Stephen doesn't put up with that. He says, I believe the promises to Abraham just like you do. And so what he does next is he systematically destroys the accusations of blasphemy against him in a really reasoned and logical way by walking through, as we said, the history of the Jewish people. So from Abraham he goes to Joseph and he presents the story of Joseph in a really cool way emphasizing the aspects of Jesus' life that line up perfectly with Jesus' life and the way Jesus lives. So Joseph and Jesus. But he doesn't come out and say, hey, Joseph is a type of Christ. Do you see that Jesus is just like Joseph here? He just describes Joseph's life. But if we stop and look at those things, if we open our minds and hearts for just a moment, we can't help but see the connections between Joseph and Jesus in verses 9 through 16. And to this point, notice, he has not even addressed any of the four things that they accuse him of. 
But from Joseph, now he starts to address those things. And so he describes Moses in the same way, same sort of way that he describes Joseph, showing that Moses was a type of Jesus as well. And he comes out and basically says that in verse 37. Will you read that verse with me, please? This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now they can't argue with this because he's just quoting the Old Testament. And again, I think there's another really powerful point there for us in our conversations with other people. If somebody doesn't like a point, if we can just quote verbatim what the Scriptures say and make that point, that is the most powerful way we can go about doing it. He says Moses was looking forward to someone else like him, a prophet who God would raise up. And the implication is that prophet is Jesus. And he doesn't stop there. He talks about how the Israelites rejected God and the implication is going to be you're acting just like the Israelites and their rejection of God. That's how you've rejected God. I'm not blaspheming God. You are in that way. He talks about the temple. And he makes clear again from Scripture that uh, uh, God's temple is not the true dwelling place of God. Heaven is. And again, he quotes from the Old Testament in order to make this point, from the book of Psalms and from the book of Isaiah, in order to show that's the case. Uh, And then, in verse 51, uh, things change a little bit. Stephen, I don't know a better way of putting it than to say Stephen just goes off on them in verse 51. And what he's going to say is that they are the guilty ones for rejecting and murdering Jesus Christ, the just one, just as their fathers rejected the messengers of God. And in that way, they are the ones who have really not kept the law, as they have accused him of doing. Um, So let's read verses 51 through 53 together. Now, to this point, Stephen has been what we might call conversational in his style. He's just gone through and talked about the old law like a, like a good teacher would do. But things change drastically in verse 51. Read with me. Uh, imagine a preacher said this to you, about you. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have rejected the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Wow! Now we don't know why Stephen's tone changed so drastically in these three verses. Uh, I've often wondered what caused this change all of a sudden. You know, I've had moments in my own preaching where you have this kind of righteous indignation that comes over you and you just want to hammer a point home. Some surmise it was some sort of interruption or outburst from the audience, and that could be it. You know, Stephen's preaching this sermon, and he's being very level-headed and kind, and then somebody interrupts and starts talking back to him, and he says, hey, that's the kind of attitude you've always had, and that's the reason why God's rejected you. Maybe um, maybe it could be that they just weren't responding uh, to what he was saying. I, I mean, that definitely could be it. 
I think anybody who's preached at all, maybe you've had that experience where you're just preaching your heart out to some, to, to some group of people and there's somebody in the audience, I'm trying not to look at anybody particularly, right, who just looks like they would rather be anywhere else in the world than here listening to what you have to say. Looks like they'd rather be strung up by their toenails than sitting in this pew. And sometimes, you know, you have to be a little sterner. Try and wake them up. This is important. This is real. This is the Word from God. And it could just be that the time had come for direct application. The groundwork had been laid, and now it was time to make the application. Whatever the case Stephen gets practical and personal and harsh in what he says to these people. So what is their reaction? Read verse 54 and following with me. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. You should recognize that as a good Bible student. It's the same phrase that we find in Acts chapter 2 when people respond to the preaching of Peter in a positive way and come and are baptized and added to the church. These people are cut to the heart, but they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a terrible, wonderful, powerful, account of a faithful man. To be described as somebody full of faith in the Holy Spirit and to have your last words be, Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when suffering, the most, one of the most brutal, brutal forms of death, being stoned to death by stones, you're described as falling asleep. At his death, Stephen accomplished exactly what he desired in his life. Stephen's death was the beginning of the greatest period of evangelism in the history of the church. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. The disciples were spread. And in killing Stephen, the Jewish rulers only succeeded in ensuring the spread of the gospel. Was that obvious in this moment? No, of course not. But it would become crystal clear, absolutely evident in the years to come. And this would be sufficient um, in some ways uh, to consider this great man and what he did in just these two chapters. But there's one more detail that is vital to understand what Stephen accomplished in his short time on earth and his short time as an evangelist. I want you to go back to Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And you probably are familiar with this detail. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in verses 1 through 3, it is this same Saul who's going to be persecuting the church, committing people to uh, prison, 
going into every house, dragging off men and women, women, just making havoc of the church, we are told in verse 3. May I suggest that Stephen's death laid the foundation for arguably the greatest evangelist in the history of the church. The, the title of my sermon was The Resurrected Stephen. Who is the resurrected Stephen? Well, may I suggest that it's that guy right there a young man by the name of Saul, at whose feet they laid their garments so that they might more effectively cast the stones on Stephen. What would have happened if Stephen had lived? Obviously, God could have spared his life. He could have saved him and kept him from death. We don't know, of course, but may I humbly suggest this evening that the Apostle Paul became what Stephen could have been, probably would have been. That Paul is, in some ways, Stephen resurrected to continue the work of Christ. It is clear in reading the book of Acts, especially the sermons of Paul, that Stephen had a profound and far-reaching impact on Paul. We think about back in Acts chapter 6 and Stephen working signs and wonders among the people. This idea of... of uh, disputing and reasoning with those who have a, a, a contrary view of Christianity and, and their inability to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. That sounds so much like Paul in all of his travels. And nowhere is this connection between Stephen and who Stephen was and who Paul became more clearly seen than when comparing the sermon of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and the sermon of Paul in Acts chapter 22. Uh, after Paul is arrested in Acts chapter 21 in Jerusalem, he asks the commander to speak to the people. Will you turn over there to Acts chapter 21 and we'll read into chapter 22. Acts chapter 21. Let's start reading there in verse 40. So when he had given him permission, uh, the uh, commander of the barracks gives Paul permission to address the people. Paul stood at the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are today. And Paul goes on to preach another sermon. And what I want you to see is how similar these two sermons are, not just in their conduct, content, but also in some very specific things that point, to, point us to the, the fact that we're intended to make a connection between these two sermons. Uh, when I first taught this in a, in a class on the book of Acts, I think I had seven or eight things, connections between these two. I think I'm up to 13 connections between the two. We'll run through them quickly, okay? It's in the same place. They're there in Jerusalem at the temple, just like Stephen preaching... Uh, Paul is preaching at the same place. That's maybe not that big of a deal, 
But we see that it's the same audience, the rulers of the Jews who have this uh, animosity toward this one who is proclaiming Jesus Christ. We have the same charges that are brought against uh, each of them. Blasphemy against the law, against the temple, against God, against their Jewish heritage, or specifically in Stephen's case against Moses. There is the same purpose for the sermon. In fact, we just read what Paul said. He is giving a defense against these charges to these people. But just like Stephen, his main purpose is not to give a defense of himself. His main purpose is to give a defense of Christ, to proclaim Jesus to these people. And then things get really interesting. We see that there is the same address of the people. Brethren and fathers, listen or hear. Now you say, well, that's a pretty general sort of address to a group of people. Sure, but there are only two places in the entire New Testament where that phrase is used. Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 22. Both Stephen and Paul show their respect for and belief in the old law. They both establish that they were Jews and were raised Jews and have respect for the promises to Abraham and all of the things involved in Judaism. That they are passionate in their defense of the things written in the old law. And we see that both Stephen and Paul give their defense in the form of an accounting of events. With Stephen, it's the history of the Jewish people. With Paul, it's the history of his own conversion and what he had to go through in order to become a Christian. And they both make the case for Christ based on evidence from the Old Testament Scriptures, but also the changes that are seen in them. Each of these men are saying to the Jews, we believed exactly the same things you believe. Only we have humbled ourselves enough to accept Christ and what the ramifications of Christ are to that belief, and you've not humbled yourself in that way. There is the same exact reference to Jesus. Both of them call Him the just one. Uh, There are only two places where Jesus is referred to as this exact name, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 22. And Paul makes direct reference to the events of Stephen's death. If you look there in chapter 22 and verse 20. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. I mean, Paul is just putting up a neon sign saying, remember that event? Remember Stephen? Remember the things that he said? And Paul... um, wants us to make sure we don't miss this. Not only is Paul recounting his personal experience and hearing Stephen's sermon, but he's essentially asking these people to whom he is speaking, hey, you remember Stephen? You remember that guy that you killed? I was there consenting to his death. Have you changed at all? Have you changed at all since he preached his sermon? Or are you the same stubborn, hard-hearted sinners? Both Stephen and Paul make a reference to the Jews' unwillingness to accept God's testimony. This isn't a matter of Stephen's sermon or Paul's sermon. It's a matter of this is what God has said and you're rejecting what God has said. Both Stephen and Paul give a very harsh but true condemnation of the unrepentant nature of the Jews. If you're there in Acts chapter 22, notice uh, beginning in verse 17. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I saw in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, 
They know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Notice what his argument is. God speaks to him and says, you've got to get out of Jerusalem because they're not going to listen to you. And, and Paul says, whoa, wait a second. They all knew who I used to be and what I used to do. Surely that will make an impact on them. But God's response in verse 21, Then He said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. What two more scathing condemnations could fanatical first century Jews hear then? Than? You're worse than your ancestors who killed all the prophets. That's what Stephen said to them. Paul takes it a step further. You're worse than the Gentiles. They'll hear the message before you will. Both Stephen and Paul are cut short by hardened heart. Each of them are not finished with their address when people uh, charge them and raise their voices, as we see in verse 22. And they listen to him until this word, when he says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And they raise their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted against him in this way. So we see there's the same reaction. The hearers reject the message and attempt to kill. In Paul's case, actually do kill. In Stephen's case, the messenger for blasphemy. And it's only the Roman protection and the providence of God, of course, that saved Paul on this occasion. Thirteen connections between these two events. Is that enough to say this is not coincidence? That this is an intentional connection that is being made by Luke as it was being made by Paul as it was being made by the Holy Spirit. That Paul comes and preaches the same sermon to the same people with the same reaction. That Paul is... In so many ways, this resurrected Stephen. Well, what applications can we make if we do make that connection between these two men? Well, notice four practical applications with me this evening as we consider this idea of Stephen and Paul. Number one, people don't change unless they have to, unless they know they need to. The events of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 probably happened around A.D. 36 or so. The events of Paul in Acts chapter 22 were probably around A.D. 57. We're talking about 20 years between these two events. Uh, when you think back, where were you 20 years ago? Uh, I, was, I was still in high school, man. Look how young I am. 20 years ago, I hope I've grown. I hope I've changed. I hope I'm better than what I was. But these people really hadn't changed at all. Because people don't change unless, unless they see the need for change. Paul was preaching the same sermon because they needed the same sermon. Paul understood their problems all too well because in some ways they were problems that he himself had as a Jew himself. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, if you want to turn over there for just a moment, Romans chapter 10, this is what the Apostle Paul says of his people, of the Jewish people, Brethren, Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire 
and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You know what our purpose is in proclaiming the gospel? Yes, it's that God, God might save people, that Jesus might save people. But we have to convince people of their need to change. And maybe we don't spend enough time talking with people about the need for salvation before we launch into how they need to be saved. What good is the how one is saved conversation when people don't think they need to be? And is that difficult? Uh, is that sometimes awkward? Absolutely it is. But if we care about people and we look at the Word of God and we say, I don't think they've done what they need to do, isn't the right and loving thing to express as kindly and as well as we can the need that they have to obey what God has called them to do. We need to tell people the message of their need for salvation and what God has done to fulfill that need. And until people realize that there's a need to change, why should they listen to a message of change? They may even love the Lord, but even that love won't cause them to change if they don't know or don't think they need to change. And from my experience, yes, sometimes people react harshly to that, but when delivered in love and kindness, the, the reaction that I've seen more often than not is appreciation. Whether they change what they're doing or not, the spirit in which that is given uh, is usually accepted. One thing that is most consistent between these two sermons is the frustration these two men have over the Jews' refusal to change and to accept Christ. People don't change unless they have to. So we've got to use the Word of God to show them they've got to. They have to if they want to be right with Him. Number two, application. Uh, boy, that's tough. I, I feel a little awkward even talking about that first one. Well, what about the second one? Never underestimate your influence on others, even the influence you can have on your enemies. I am convinced that Stephen had a profound influence on Paul's life. For the negative, to start with, but then later for the positive. That Stephen touched Saul deeply with the words and actions that Saul, Paul, saw in Stephen in Acts chapter 7. I have no doubt that Saul was among those who were cut to the heart in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54 upon the conclusion of Stephen's sermon. And while initially Saul's reaction was to go out and to persecute the church, the groundwork was laid for him to humble himself before Christ, become a Christian, and become the man we know as the Apostle Paul. And it is supposition, I know, to wonder how often Paul thought of Stephen or even the events of Acts chapter 7. I would guess it was fairly often. But it is clear from what he says in Acts chapter 22 that he did not forget Stephen and he did not forget that sermon. Someone will react uh, violently, maybe even vindictively to us proclaiming the gospel. But if they react that way, that is far better than the shrug of the shoulders, may I suggest. Because now that message is in their memory. And if things change in their life or change in their heart, where they become more open to the gospel, 
They'll remember you and what you stood for and the things that you said to them. We have great influence in every relationship that we're a part of, sometimes more influence than we know. As a parent or a spouse, of course, but even as a grandparent, a child, a friend, a co-worker, just somebody at church, even an enemy, we can still make a difference in the lives of these people if we live and act and teach like we should, if we're Stevens in their lives. And specifically, let me emphasize one aspect of that. Number three, your power to forgive another person can be life-changing for you, but also for them. What was it that Paul called himself? Uh, do you remember his description of self? I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the foremost of sinners. And it seems clear from his writing that he viewed himself in this way because of his persecution of the church and Christians before his conversion. He looked back at that with such guilt over the things that he had done. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, that's where he describes himself in that way. 1 Timothy chapter 1. But notice what he says in this context. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, that's violently arrogant, literally, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in Him for everlasting life. If Paul could be saved, we can be saved too. How often do you think, as Paul thought of himself in this way, he heard Stephen's words? Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Even before Paul ultimately became a Christian, Stephen's heart was already such that he was ready and willing to forgive. And it paved the way for Paul to be able to get past his sin and to work for the Lord in the way that he did. And then finally, this last point, and the lesson will be yours. Everyone deserves a chance to obey the gospel upon hearing the word of God. Paul did, but not just Paul. Why was it that Paul preached to these people in Acts chapter 22? With everything he knew about them, he knew them better than he, they knew themselves. With what he had seen with these same people with Stephen, the way they reacted to this same message that he was preaching. And even what he says in Acts chapter 22, verses 18 through 21 that we read a second ago, where Jesus appears to him and says, they're not going to listen to you. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Why was it that Paul still preached this sermon to these people to his own detriment physically to endanger his own life? Because he wanted them to have the same chance he did. Because Stephen preached his sermon, and maybe it reached nobody else's heart, but ultimately it reached the heart of the Apostle Paul. The chance the Lord gave him through the preaching of Stephen was the chance he wanted to give to others. 
And we should be willing to give that chance to anyone. And then they have the choice whether to trust and obey or to reject. The same choice, perhaps, that you have tonight. If you've heard the Word of God and you've seen this uh, beautiful example of Christ-like life and death in Stephen, know that God loves you so much that even when you were His enemy, He sent His Son to die for you. And you have the chance to come and be adopted into the family of God. Whatever you've done in the past, whoever you were before, you can be made pure and holy through the blood of Jesus. And if you're already a Christian and you realize your light has not been what it should, well, no, it's not too late to change those things. It wasn't too late for Paul, and it's not too late for you. And if we can help you in any way with that this evening, come now. While together we stand and while we sing.